no singular artist has touched as many incredible films as Kenny Loggins. <laughs> And welcome to episode of Cinenation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cinenation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. However, this month, we'll be doing a special series on a director. And for the month of June, we'll be talking about Tony Scott, director of such films as Man on Fire, True Romance, Unstoppable, and Top Gun. He directed a total of 16 films during his career, and each episode this month, we'll be discussing four of them. Uh... When prepping for these episodes, I began to realize how Scott directed movies that worked within a variety of different genres. Yeah, but they for sure. all have they all have Scott's stamp on the movie. Like they always feel like a, a, it sounds like Tony Scott is a genre in itself. <laughs> um, yeah, but all of his movies, as we'll talk today, we'll be talking about kind of a a, a vampire film, a revenge almost noir film, a a cop, a buddy cop movie, a, a franchise movie, and then you have something like Top Gun, which is like a sports kind of war movie. Like a <laughs> lot of different things are happening. Um, but yeah, he was a director that was very, he was commercially successful, but was never beloved by critics. Very kind of like hated a lot of the time. Some people even credit movies like Top Gun and his relation, his uh, collaboration with Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson as kind of like the beginning or it's not the beginning, but like people kind of see it as like the downfall of like American cinema, because <laughs> there was one book I read of like, we can't really pinpoint what movie to blame for all this, but we're going to say top gun. And I think it's a very, I think it's a little, uh, uh, a big of a, a big stretch right there. But since even though he wasn't, he wasn't critically successful since his tragic death in 2012, People have beginning have begun to reevaluate his work. Uh, many filmmakers like Quentin Tarantino and Edgar Wright have praised his work, and that's kind of helped improve uh, Tony Scott's cinematic legacy. Mm -hmm. But before we dive into the movies, let's talk a little bit about Tony Scott, kind of put in context. Like, so what what did you think of Tony Scott before we started up this series? Um. I mean, I definitely know him as kind of the, the action guy, like the super MTV style, especially one of my favorite Tony Scott movies and a movie that I love a lot. We've talked about it on the podcast before is Man on Fire, um, which is just like a crazy style of filmmaking. It's it's all over the place. It's quick cuts. It's um, and and Top Gun, obviously, I love as well. And some of his stuff in between. And so a lot of times I think about like his, his 80s period with, where it's like everything's in California and the sky is like red and that, that like split filter thing he does where like the sky is red and the ocean's blue and, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then leading into like his 2000s when everything was just like yellow, just like all the way through yeah. like man on fire. It's does like greens and yellows and domino is, um, is like just straight up yellow. So think about those like, quick cuts and the um mm -hmm. the kind of crazy color filters and just like a really like you said like he's got his style no matter what he's working in it it looks like a tony scott movie period yeah yeah i mean even from the hunger onward it's mm -hmm. like it's really kind of fascinating to watch the hunger and see how 
developed his style is already like just out of the gate um and and we'll we'll discuss it as we go into it of how that was very uh that was very derided during its time because it's like oh god it's just a commercial as a movie is what many critics felt yeah. it was like it, it that was uh, the big thing that will always always kind of come across with tony scott is the the debate of style over substance is that many critics and tony scott as he said in some interviews he was aware of it and the big thing we have discussed too is that his brother ridley scott uh who directed such films as blade runner gladiator uh Thelma and louise more critically loved and kind of classic films as people would say and tony wasn't really in that realm during his lifetime mm-hmm. it was like ridley was the the big prestige director and his brother was the mtv commercial guy um and 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 like tony i think in an interview i read uh from my like 09 tony was aware he was like yeah like i'll ne- i'm never like ridley gets the checklist of classic films that he goes maybe one day like after i'm gone people will start praising my films as classic films and i feel like we could be i feel like that's gonna happen i feel like some of these films are worth putting in that category for sure yeah and i think he's he's got some stuff and we'll we'll see this as we come back to it like you can't deny a lot of his work as like pop art like you can't deny the influence of top gun and and the staple of of pop culture that it is now and then there's other stuff that i truly do think exists as like some form of art like man on fire there's something so unhinged and so unique about it that and and it's very poorly reviewed film but i think has been reconsidered uh over the past 10 years or so And, and you see a lot more love for it now but um yeah, he's he's got some some stinkers, which we'll talk about, and he's got some <laughs> some films that were were popular and should be recognized for breaking into pop culture the way that they did, and then he's got some films that yeah. I think were truly some like insane visions that are worth discussing, like Domino. Is that what? We're <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I'll 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 leave my takes for Domino later. No, like Man on Fire, I won't jump too much into this, but like Man on Fire is a prime example of this. Is that Rotten Tomatoes, the site that everyone loves because Paddington <laughs> became the number one most reviewed film recently. Um, but 38% on Rotten Tomatoes for Man on Fire for critics. Audience score, 89%. A very wide mar- a wide margin. Mm-hmm. Big difference between those. And that's kind of what we're going to be going at this month with Tony Scott is how his movies, I I do believe a lot of them were misunderstood in their time. <clears throat> and because of his strong visual style, his movies have sustained and gained a legacy. Yeah. One thing that I find so fascinating when looking at his filmography is seeing how he works with stars. And that's something I'm going to keep coming back to this month, because when you look at all of his movies, so he met, he made 16 I think you, for one, Denzel Washington doesn't have the action career he has today without Tony Scott. <laughs> yeah. They made five films together. And I feel like that has allowed Denzel to have a different side of his career mm-hmm. while also kind of extending his career in several ways. It's like if you don't have 
Mail on Fire or Crimson Tide or Deja Vu or Unstoppable. You don't have two guns. You don't have uh, the Equalizer series. You don't have this all this stuff with Anton Fuqua, basically. Like, it's... I, I think it's... A, it's it's And also, that's an underrated re- like collaboration we'll discuss later in the month. But, like, you look at... Uh, Last Boy Scout, you have Bruce Willis coming off of multiple Die Hard movies. You have Enemy of the State with Will Smith, prime peak Will Smith of Independence Day, Men in Black. You have Beverly Hills Cop 2 with Eddie Murphy at the prime of his kind of career. Kevin Costner's coming off of Field of Dreams and Bull Durham (laughs) uh, for Revenge. And then he essentially, Top Gun makes Tom Cruise. Yep. And then he does Days of Thunder when Tom Cruise is like, I can get any movie made, basically. And even Domino with Keira Knightley. Keira Knightley's coming off Pirates of the Caribbean series and also is in Pride and Prejudice the same year and gets nominated for an Oscar. He's working with actors at their peak moments. And I don't know of many directors that can say I do that multiple times like this. Like We talked about Peter Weir a little bit of like how like, he did that with some actors. And it's always a way to reinvent them in some way. And I mm-hmm. feel like with Tony Scott, he is someone who amplifies their star power. If that makes sense. Yeah. Not to reinvent, but to amplify what is already there. So yeah, I think, I think it'll be a fun, fun discussion this month about Tony Scott. I, so you want to hear about his early beginnings, Thomas? Let's hear it. All right. Anthony David Lighton Scott later known as Tony Scott, was born on June 21st, 1944 in Tynemouth, Northumberland, England. I apologize if those are all wrong. I know England is correct. Um, Gotta love those those British town names. Yeah, Tynemouth, Northumberland, England. Shout, to out to, shout out to any British listeners, but um, sending, sending a FedEx to your country is so confusing. So a lot of buildings, <laughs> a lot of buildings don't have numbers; they have names. I don't know how you would be a um, post office worker in in England. <laughs> England, um, but he was born to Elizabeth and Colonel Francis Percy Scott. He was the youngest of three sons. His oldest brother was Frank, and the middle middle brother was, as we said, future film director Ridley Scott. Francis Scott served in the Royal Engineers, a branch of the British Army that provided engineer and tech support to the armed forces. Francis was away a lot due to his work, and the family was a very military family because uh, Tony's older brother, Frank, would also later join the British Merchant Navy. He was a sailor. Uh, Even though the Scots were a military family, there was cinema kind of in their blood in an odd way. Tony's great uncle, Dixon Scott, was a pioneer in the early cinema chains around Tyneside, England. Uh, (laughs) There is still one remaining theater the only remaining newsreel theater in england uh remains there today from this chain in newcastle it was closed it was closed indefinitely last year due to covid19 but they're still trying to keep it open by raising raising money Hmm. uh growing up tony had dreams of being a painter and his older brother ridley also planned to be an artist so tony followed in his footsteps in terms of schooling tony attended grangefield school for high school uh, West Hartlepool College of Art, and he graduated from Sunderland Art School with a fine arts degree. While in school, Tony starred in Ridley's directorial debut short, Boy and Bicycle, which made which he, which Ridley made at the Co- Royal College of Art, where he was studying photography. 
Ridley was 23 when he directed this film, and Tony was 16. Tony, again following in Ridley's footsteps, applied for the Royal <laughs> College of Art, but was initially rejected when he first applied and later was accepted. Tony's first short film he ever made was an adaptation of a short story by Ambrose Bierce. Bierce? Bierce, yeah. Yeah, titled One of the Missing. It was about a federal soldier during the American Civil War who, who gets trapped underneath debris after an explosion goes off while expecting a Confederate encampment. Returning the favor of being cast in Ridley's film, Tony cast Ridley Scott in the lead role of the American soldier. I can't find this movie anywhere. It's one that I want to see. Uh, I had someone like describe it online of how it had like the similar like like fast cutting that would be present in a lot of Tony's films. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you can find Ridley's movie Boy and Bicycle on YouTube though because it was on um, a DVD of one of Ridley's films. So Tony spent a total of eight years in art school, and his plan, as I said, was initially to become a painter. But after graduating, he planned on working in documentaries. However, his brother Ridley had been gaining success as a commercial director in England. He'd even started a company called Ridley Scott Associates. Ridley said, Tony had wanted to do documentaries at first, and I told him, don't go to the BBC, come to me first. I knew that he had a fondness for cars, so I told him, come work with me, and within a year, you'll have a Ferrari. And he did. (laughs) Uh, Tony also said he decided to do it because he had a lot of debt from attending art school. Tony began shooting commercials while also running Ridley's company uh, as Ridley began developing a feature career. Tony did commercials for almost four, almost 15 years, and he gained the reputation for making visually stunning ads that were both sexy and oozed a rock and roll style. Yeah. He was incredibly prolific, and he, he called this period his training ground for filmmaking. At this time... A little bit of a movement began to stir with these English commercial directors because they began receiving feature film offers. Not as big as, say, the Australian New Way with with Peter Weir, uh, as we discussed a few months ago, but it was a movement. Ridley directed The the Duelist in 1977, Mm -hmm. Alien in 1979, and Blade Runner in 1982. Uh, There was also Alan Parker, who directed Bugsy Malone in 1976, but he later directed such films as Midnight Express, Fame... Pink Floyd, The Wall, The Commitments, and Mississippi Burning. Then there was Adrian Lynn, who directed Foxes, this kind of punk rock girl band musical with Jodie Foster, but then later directed Flashdance, Fatal Attraction, Nine and a Half Weeks, Indecent Proposal, and Unfaithful. When looking back at this collective, director Alan Parker said, looking, or looking back, I came from a generation of filmmakers who, who couldn't have really started anywhere but commercials because we had no film industry in the United Kingdom at the time. People like Ridley, Tony, Adrian Lynn, Hugh Hudson, and myself. Commercials proved to be incredibly important for us. So very similar to what happened with Australian New Wave in a way. It's like there mm-hmm. was no industry for them, and they found kind of a, a way to, to get into uh, the movies. But the last person to get their feature shot in America was Tony Scott. His opportunity came when he was offered to direct an adaptation of the 1981 vampire novel by Whitley Stryber. Uh, he was initially in talks to do an adaptation of Interview with a Vampire, funny enough. Oh, that would have been interesting. Yeah, but instead of this movie, instead. Uh, he said uh, it almost didn't happen because producer Richard Shepard initially offered the directing position to Tony's friend and contemporary Alan Parker because Parker was just coming off Pink Floyd the Wall and fame. Parker allegedly declined, 
and he told Shepard to look at the commercials of Tony Scott and he lobbied Tony for the job. And that's how Tony started his feature film career. So he starts off with the hunk with the hunger and the hunger was released in 1983. And it's about two vampires, Miriam and John played by Catherine Deneuve and David Bowie. Uh, Miriam is a centuries old, actually, I believe like 6,000 years old vampire who promises youth and eternal life to her lovers. And John is her current lover. However, John quickly begins aging, aging. So he seeks the help of a researcher who studies the relationship between aging and sleep. And this researcher is played by Susan Sarandon Mm -hmm. in a kind of early role uh, for Susan Sarandon. This is a, a, to me, a fantastic debut in terms of like how fully formed Tony Scott is. Yeah. And his visuals here. We've, we've talked a lot about directors who like explode with their first couple of movies. Like, and you just get like unadulterated their vision and then they kind of learn to reel it back in as they go along. Um, we've talked about Scorsese kind of being that way. Whereas somebody who is kind of the opposite would be someone like we talked about Wes Anderson. Yeah. Like with, when you watch bottle rocket and you can see like the pieces, but you can just tell he, he hasn't, you know, reached the level of being to control things the way he wants to. And Scott is definitely more on the Scorsese end. You just watch this and you're like, he, he really doesn't get back to that style. I feel like from the hunger until that like 2000s period um that's true he because he just explodes with like the music video editing like crazy and um and and i think we'll see as we go along he kind of reels it back in to be a little bit more commercially viable in the the rest of his films in the 80s but um but yeah it is like if if you watch that movie you can see why it's such a good debut because if you watch that movie you see like this is what i'm getting this is yeah. what I'm, I'm in for if I sign up to have Tony Scott on my next movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, just the opening. It, it, stars, it stars David Bowie. He's kind of becoming, he's doing acting at this point. And the opening, I think, is amazing. Mm. Where it's, um, it's like, it's it's usually like a goth rock band. Uh, the song is, is uh, Bella Goes, He's Dead by Bauhaus. I apologize if that pronunciation is wrong for that English band. You English people, guys. <laughs> your names. Um, but yeah, it's just an amazing opening. And as I said, I've read the book. I told Thomas earlier, I read the book of this. And it when I read it, it felt like a like 80s novel, like very like contemporary and almost like nostalgic looking when looking back on it in a way of like terms of visuals. And then you watch this movie and Tony Scott just goes a hard left into like goth and like just and like kind of this niche society that's happening in in I, I mean, I guess probably in England uh, mainly, but also in America of this music scene and this visual scene, uh, this very art, art, art house type scene. And it it's really amazing to see because it, it's just it comes in like full blast in, in that first like 15 minutes of that movie mm-hmm. um and it it I mean, it takes weird turns it just it takes <laughs> a lot of weird turns like because the whole the the logic's not fully explained in the in the movie i don't think scott it's, was super concerned it, about the logic of this yeah one. 
Yeah, it's briefly in there. Like Captain Noob kind of gives it like a little little bit of a speech to Susan Sarandon. But basically, the idea is that Captain Noob's character, who's Miriam, is this again a thousand like six thousand year old uh, vampire, and every few hundred years she she finds a new lover because basically she promises this lover like, hey, I'll give you eternal life and youth and we'll be living and living together in that time period. But Mm -hmm. you have to make sure you sleep six hours a day and one full day a week. And that'll keep you eternally beautiful and and youthful. That's important guys. Get your sleep. And what ends up happening. And with all these lovers is that at a certain period, they stop getting less sleep and they also have to feed, which is like usually drinking the blood of some, of some human and when they do this, like the the they have to drink more and more blood to stay youthful, but they also are becoming weaker. So it's it's they're they're not as strong in terms of how to uh, to feed on someone, and so it becomes like the blood tastes different. It's, that's what's kind of described in the book. But Tony, he gives you a little bit of that because it says it's a loose adaptation, but I think he does a really good job of like it's all kind of still there, like. There's a whole chapters in the book where it shows her like in ancient Egypt or whatever. Mm-hmm. And in the hunger, it's just like quick shots. And you're just like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> <laughs> and where it's like, it's like she's in like a pyramid and it's like she's with the lover. And and it's it's just like her like remembering back to a specific time. And it's never explained. But uh, I think it's it. We, we talked about this a little bit in the sh- like We talked about The Shining one time with something. I think it was with the Haunted House episode of how Kubrick does that where like he takes images of the book mm-hmm. and just puts them briefly in the shining. And I think this is very similar is that Scott does that with this movie is that he takes brief images. They're longer explained the book and just gives you a little bit of the taste of it in the movie version of it. My hair comes out of my hand. Look, I've been reading this book. Why are these books always so badly written? I wonder. I've been there. No, nothing. They're guessing. How long is it going to take? How long do the others take? I don't know. You must remember, Miriam. I know it's a long time, but it's not the kind of thing that you forget. Lolia, how long did she take? A week. A few days, I don't remember. She couldn't sleep. No, she fed, but she couldn't sleep. And the one before that? The same. I wish the same. I prayed I'd never lose you. I know what's happening to you. I live with your suffering again and again. I hope that this time with you, some, somehow, some miracle. I've never stopped hoping that. It's a very MTV inspired type movie. I think I, I think the acting's great. I, th- I think everything about this movie is really visually stunning. Is it's a a dark movie, but I think an enjoyable experience. But it was very uh, hated <laughs> at the time of its release because of his visual style. Yeah, it's it's overwhelming. It's it's sensory overload for sure. And if you're not used to it, especially at this time, it's very ahead of its time with how he's do with what he's doing visually 
and people just were not ready for it. Uh, the opening line of Roger Ebert's one and a half star review of The Hunger is the hunger is an agonizingly bad vampire movie circling around an exquisitely effective sex scene. There's a big sex scene at one point between two characters and like he shoots it. It's what kind of helped gain the cult around the movie because it was a sex scene that mm -hmm. was so well shot and very much like a explicit sex scene. It felt like for the time, which I'm now coming to find out that's very apparent in several of Tony Scott's movies <laughs> as we'll get to revenge a little bit later. Um, but yeah, he shoots these all like in a beautiful way. But yeah, it was not beloved. Uh, he actually gained the name to bring in Pauline Kale here because I haven't, I couldn't find reviews of her online. Maybe it's from the books that we haven't, that I don't have access to. But she called him Tony, Mister Make It Glow Scott, <laughs> and I feel like that's what like that she started calling him because of movies like The Hunger and then later Top Gun and things like that. So what did you talk about? I mean, the weather, the fashions. I mean, it just seems like three and a half hours is a hell of a long time to have a conversation with, with a stranger. Doesn't it seem now like that to you? Now you're telling me how long my three conversations and a half hours are supposed a long to be. Time to talk. Hey, to be? I'm asking a question. Could you lower your voice? What's wrong with you? What the hell is wrong with you? I told you this woman's husband is rotting away in some Swiss clinic somewhere. She's lonely and she, she doesn't have a friend in the world. You know what I think? I mean, if, uh, I mean, do you want to know what I think? I'm sure you're gonna tell me anyway. I think you should see a doctor. I am a doctor. So, I said, The Hunger's one that I think you should watch. I, I don't know if I would start with The Hunger. <laughs> Maybe if you just, wanna, you just wanna see, like, how crazy he gets right out of the gate. Yeah, it's definitely not his most user-friendly uh, It's not. movie. Do you think... Do you think the next movie is his most user friendly? Yes. Yeah, I think this is if okay. you if you need a jumping in point, you should dive right into the danger zone. Thomas, what is Top Gun about? Top Gun is about the only the finest of the finest Navy pilots. <laughs> Hotshot Maverick, you could even say, uh, young Navy pilot named codenamed Maverick, and his uh, what exactly is he a navigator? What do the guys in the back do? <laughs> I, I don't know. I was worried that this time I'm watching it. I was like, because like, oh, like Maverick gets the top spot against the ice mail. It's like, don't they have partners? Are they yeah. not being like put together like as a team? Yeah, they're just always like anytime they cut to them, they're just always like looking back like he's behind us. Um, yeah. anyway, his partner, uh, Goose, Goose. Yeah. Yeah. Anthony Edwards uh, are kind of the second place in this, the, the second best pilots in this like squadron on a on a. Uh, aircraft carrier and the number one pilot loses his cool during a run-in with a very infamous cougar cougar yeah cougar. um yeah. there's this there's this infamous new plane that the enemy has a mig and yeah, uh, MIG. Yeah, yeah and so they they have a run-in the, the first documented run-in with a mig and cougar loses it has a panic attack and so Cougar was supposed to be going to Top Gun, which is the Naval Academy's pilot training uh, school in um, yeah. in San Diego. And um, since Cougar's out, Goose and Maverick are in. And so this is the story of even though they, they don't want to send Maverick because he's a wild card. He's 
he's yeah. uh he's all about showing off and and he's not not the smartest pilot he's got great instincts but uh but yeah it's about goose and maverick making it through top gun school against their rival Iceman, played by val kilmer and uh and a in a burgeoning uh romance with uh charlie the government appointed liaison to the school which may or may not be foreboding (laughs) kelly mcgillis oh yeah maverick is tom cruise by the way if you yeah i I didn't mention that and goose is anthony edwards fantastic in this movie everyone wants to be best friends with goose also very charming anthony edwards is great very charming meg ryan young meg ryan cameo tom scarrett tom Tom scarrett uh uh michael ironside uh, a lot, of, a lot of great characters. Little, very yeah. brief. Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins. Yes. Who else? Yeah, it's he, hilarious. I can't. You know, you know that this was early in in Tom Cruise's career because they let Tom Cruise stand. They he lets Tim Robbins stand next to him without Tom Cruise being on an Apple box. That would never. That would never happen again in in Tom Cruise's career. I did hear they put put Tom Cruise though on like lifts with Kelly McGillis because she was taller than him. Yeah. When when they when 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 he get when he and uh, let's talk is. Tim Robbins Merlin? Yeah. Tim Robbins is Merlin, yes. Yeah, when when he and Merlin like get out of the cockpit towards the end and Tim Robbins is like behind him, he's like two feet taller than him. Well, I mean, Tom Cruise does get inverted in this movie. Yeah. I don't know why that part where he's just like, I was inverted. And he does like his hand thing <laughs> with it. There's stuff that Tom Cruise does in this movie. I'm just like, oh man, I don't know. Like my, my before i dive into that but like uh, well i'll sit here like the part that i think of where i was just like what is tom cruise doing it's the thing it's the scene when he's talking with kelly mcgillis and they're listening to otis redding he's like uh my parents used to listen to this music and i'm like it sounds like you've never heard this music before by how you're acting right now this this movie i love i love top gun obviously a lot of people love top gun and it was a huge hit and it's credited for like an insane amount of people joining the navy just because how cool this movie was and aviator sunglasses sold off the shelves just like tom cruise sold out ray-ban sunglasses after risky business came out he's just a great walking talking sunglass advertiser <laughs> this it's not it's there's there's like a weird spectrum of like cheesy good and cheesy bad and like cheesy bad so bad it's good and like in my mind top gun and roadhouse are inches from each other and somehow top gun has like emerged as a movie that people like think is just out and out good whereas roadhouse is a movie that people think is like cheesy so bad it's good but they're so close they're they're inches away from being each other just in the way they're like completely unaware of the homoeroticism that permeates the movie like it's just all about this is men being tough men and you watch it it's just kind of hilarious yeah, here's the thing. I got I got out myself here. I don't love Top Gun. <laughs> I think be, I think because of that, where it's like, it is very cheesy. Yeah, I think and it's like, hilarious. It, but like, I I, yeah. I watch Top Gun the same. I, I watch and love Top Gun the same way that I watch and love Roadhouse, which I think a lot of people yeah. unironically love Top Gun. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I, I know it was several people that are probably listening to the show right now who are like, no, it's a classic. And now he's going to text me at this very moment when hearing me say his voice. Um, I think uh, I think the ultimate for me, the scene that like you watch it and you're like, oh, this is why this is not this is a really fun movie. But it's not like one of the scenes that really keeps it from going over the top is after spoiler uh, goose dies. Um, 
which is very sad especially just because of how much fun you have watching anthony edwards to like know that he's not going to be in the rest of the movie it's tough but um viper tom scarrett's character like it's like two minutes of screen time after anthony edwards has died but it's honestly less than like 24 hours within the movie and tom scarrett comes in and it's just like basically like are you gonna sit around crying about it or are you gonna be a man and it's just like dude <laughs> his best friend just died like yesterday there's okay there's some weird t- like pacing like like time and space issues in this movie if that mm-hmm. makes sense like it's that i think of that scene i think of the scene when tom cruise and kind of as i was saying like listen to otis writing they're kind of like revealing stuff about their characters he talks about his family and it's like i get to get a shower and then it just like cuts to him leaving mm-hmm. on a motorcycle but then cuts to them like in the elevator right afterwards and she's like it looks like you need another shower it just i'm like i'm like how much time has passed yeah. in this scene because yeah. it's so like there's nothing in Did between they both them. just leave her house and drive straight to yeah, the school it was just it was so odd and she's like in because i found out i found out it was a reshoot because she's in like a uh a hat, a baseball cap, like a, mm-hmm. a navy hat that she's wearing, because her hair. She was a brunette. She dyed her hair for another movie, and they needed a scene. And they're like, "We got to shoot this scene of her in the elevator. Let's put her like, put her hair up so we can like do this kind of like, uh, flirtatious scene between her and Cruz." But I was just like, "Can we not have gotten something <laughs> in between like that scene? Like this this movie is very like every sequence is well defined. It's the like this is the scene where." charlie and maverick start falling for each other and we're just gonna play that out for 15 minutes and that's okay now you're gonna move on something else yeah it's uh it's far from a perfect film but it is so much fun and it is it cool. is, it is like if there's anything tony scott can deliver on it's it's cool i agree with you on that and you can't and it's tom cruise is charming as hell he's cool yeah anthony edwards he would I don't think ever was cool again in the rest of his career. I love, I love your Anthony Edwards. This is one of those movies. It's kind of like Matthew Broderick playing Ferris Bueller. It's like, or like uh, Henry Winkler being the Fonz. It's like you can you can play the coolest character in the world once, and then and then you're just done with it. Um, That's it. Yeah. And and obviously Kenny Loggins doing the soundtrack, iconic. And the the score the the boom 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 like it's just great it's it is eighties it is Tony Scott it is you know Tom Cruise I I feel like Tom Cruise is has more so than than risky business Tom Cruise has built his career off of playing different versions of, oh, of Maverick yes I love Tom Cruise um and and when you see him in something and he's not playing Maverick you're like oh awesome. But like Ethan yeah. Hunt is is Maverick. Like they're always like Ethan, you can't do this; it's too risky. And he's like, "I'm doing it anyway." I mean, Ma- Mission Impossible. It's Maverick without the melodrama is kind yeah. of the thing. Mm-hmm. Like this, like top because I I literally wrote down when watching like a uh, Top Gun and I think Revenge. I just wrote down in my notes melodrama exclamation point exclamation point because yeah. it's just like I'm not saying melodrama is bad. But I'm saying he, Tony Scott, this is why I think he has a little bit of like kind of early 1940s noir influences because it's just, it's, he's so melodramatic in a lot of these Yeah, and I think it stands out in his movies too because when he's not thinking, he's, he's someone who doesn't think about the melodrama throughout the movie. You know, sometimes you watch something and you're like, they, they lay the drama out and it permeates the movie 
and for him he's like you, you can tell when you're watching this movie he's like i'm gonna make these planes look as cool as possible amazing <laughs> and so then when he's like all right now it's gonna be the sad times you're like whoa where did this come from <laughs> one of my just favorite scenes because it's just so like both characters unhinged is when anytime like kilmer and cruz are in a scene together <laughs> but specifically in the in the locker room in the locker room when uh it's like it's like i think you're i think you're dangerous and like cruz is like yeah like he just like mm-hmm. kind of like does a weird like jump at him uh it's just yeah it's just so that's, uh, i mean that's the part that gets the most you know critique of the 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 homoerotic subtext more so than than tom cruise playing beach volleyball in blue jeans which just makes me feel so uncomfortable Every yeah, time I, I, I was like, man, how is that possible? Sweat. Blue jeans? Just being like sweaty blue jeans with sand up in there. Ugh, gross. But um, but yeah, the tension between Iceman and and Maverick is played <laughs> so sexual. Not sure whether Tony Scott intended that or not, but I think the best, there's a shot where they're like facing off and Val Kilmer does this little like, like he's going to bite off Tom Cruise's nose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. That's the same. It's, it's really nice. It's really. Yeah. It's really nice. We won. All right. All right. They won too, man. That's not what I heard. No, we did. We got gesture. We no, did. no. Below the hard deck does not count. Hard deck, my ass. We nailed that son of a bitch. Ah, you guys really are cowboys. What's your problem, Kazansky? You're everyone's problem. That's because every time you go up in the air, you're unsafe. I don't like you because you're dangerous. That's right. Nice, man. I am dangerous. Yeah, I wanted to bring in too of like why, like how this, how he came, Tony Scott came to this movie. So he said after the hunger, like no one wanted to work with him because it did so poorly. So he just went back to doing commercials, and he did a commercial for Saab, this kind of car commercial, and it had jets in it. Mm-hmm. And he said, I think. I think Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson. I think Don Simpson was like, it was 3 a.m. He was on, he was watching TV. He was high as usual and <laughs> saw that, that commercial. and was like, yo, this is pretty cool. And they watched the hunger. It was like, yo, this guy can make our movie about these jets. These about this, this Naval air station, uh, Naval, Naval aviators that we've been like trying to work together. And I think, I mean, Bruckheimer had been doing movies. Bruckheimer and Simpson had been doing movies before this with like Beverly Hills Cop and Thief. But I really think Top Gun is what launches them to the stratosphere after this movie. Because then just like, especially Bruckheimer, not long after when it gets to the 90s, it's just like bad boys, Crimson Tide. I think the Bruckheimer-Scott relationship is the better version and the early version of michael bay and bruckheimer mm-hmm. is what i think yeah i think every time after that it's like bruckheimer's like trying to find a guy who's like tony scott yeah and there's been plenty of michael bay movies that have come out that feel like glorified yeah. military recruitment uh, films yep did we talk positively enough about top gun i feel like it was a lot of like yeah it's cheesy but we love it yeah no i i adore i adore top gun um but it's one of those movies that I'm not going to sit here and say that this is a perfect film. It is a movie that I love for its flaws. And I'm not, I'm not trying to say that in a way like the room that I sit and like laugh at how bad it is. Yeah. Like it has genuinely thrilling moments. It has 
some like baffling but incredible performances from people like that's kind of what i love it's what i mean that's what i love about tom cruise and val kilmer throughout their careers it's mm-hmm. like you, there's these two actors that you can watch and just be like why did they make that call um, and you never know <laughs> like what kind of energy they're going to bring into a project uh so yeah it, it's it's a genuinely enjoyable movie for me and it is far from perfect but that is not to I, I i might enjoy it more because of that i think i think if you don't have tony scott doing this and you don't have tom cruise the movie just does not work oh yeah it could fade into the like late 80s like steven seagal era of obscurity if you didn't have those two on it it becomes clint eastwood and firefox is the thing <laughs> but it's speaking of firefox uh the movie if you couldn't guess was not well received it was mixed (laughs) it was a mixed reception uh but it was a massive massive blockbuster grossing over 350 million dollars the block at the at the box office on a 15 million dollar budget apparently tony scott was fired three times from the movie (laughs) and and kept being brought back on because they didn't know who else to to replace him uh the original choice for uh maverick can you guess who it is um, it's a totally different movie. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum. Not Jeff Goldblum. I'll give you a hint. He was in another war film, or he was in a war film uh a year later. Directed by a director I have already mentioned on this this episode of the show. This episode. Yeah. Um and and the last movie that we just discussed about adapting a book. <laughs> who is it? Matthew Modine. Oh, 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 oh. Full metal Full jacket. Full metal jacket. Um, a year later. Okay, yeah. Um sorry, Matthew Modine, I like you. I like you a lot, but you you don't have you don't have the Tom Cruise cool, dude. Yeah, Matthew Modine turned it down because he felt the film's it felt the film's pro-military stance went against his politics. Yeah, it's definitely uh definitely pro-military. Yeah. Well, being as yeah, I think I read that uh it was People used it as like a recruiting tool. I guess like uh, Navy Navy had recruitment bro- booths in some theaters to attract enthusiastic patrons yeah. is what it says. How could you walk out of that movie and not be like if they were like, hey, come sign up for the Navy. We'll give you a leather jacket right now. I'd be like, hell yeah, let's go. What's my call sign? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, give me a cool <laughs> call sign right now and I'm in. It also helped inspire. I think I read like this and, and a few good men because Tom Cruise helped inspire the TV show Jag. Hmm. And then also the NCIS franchise. Uh, so there you go. That's what Top Gun did. But also it was it was a uh, Congress put it in the Library of Congress selected for the film for preservation and National Film Registry in night in 2015 uh, for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Oh yeah, I want to read you Roger Ebert's review of it, and this is why I think I agree with him on this. Um, movies like Top Gun are hard to review because the good parts are so good. And the bad parts are so relentless. The dogfights are absolutely the best since Clint Eastwood's electrifying aerial scenes in Firefox. <laughs> but look out for the scenes where the people talk to one another. I mean, Elliot's Elliot's far off. I yeah, I mean, that, yeah, we should, I guess we should we should also we didn't really touch on that, but yeah, the 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 jet stuff is insane. Like I watch it now, oh, and yeah. I'm like, I don't aerial know how they pull this off. Yeah, the aerial scenes are amazing. And that's why I think really why I say if you don't have Tony Scott, this doesn't work because he's so practical effects driven and he pushes it 
so hard in this in this movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, the aerial scenes are still like I still like I said are still amazing to this day. Yeah, and why I was like I, I mean it's it's like what makes me wonder what a Top Gun two would have been like with Tony Scott at the helm. I still got him. He's still back there. Come on, man, do some of that pilot shit. Yeah, I got him. I've had about enough of this shit. When you hit the brakes, I'll fly right by. Okay, you're mine. Woo! Jesus Christ. Woo! Let's see what you got now, Chester. Okay, man, let's turn and burn. So after Top Gun... Bruckheimer and Simpson were like, yo, we love working with you. We want you to do the sequel to our other like big movie, our movie franchise. And that is Beverly Hills Cop 2. And Beverly Hills Cop 2 stars Eddie Murphy as Axel Foley. And Axel Foley is a Detroit cop. Uh, he's moved up the ranks uh, since the first movie of Beverly Hills Cop 1. Mm-hmm. And he is now an undercover police officer in Detroit, but his buddy, the the his chief, the chief he met from the first film in Beverly Hills, uh, has there's been attempted murder on him. He's in the hospital after being shot by the the alphabet crimes people uh, or gang. <laughs> and Murphy or Foley decides to go back to Beverly Hills and find out who shot his friend. And I. I'm biased. I I love this movie. <laughs> I know there's a, it, it's a flawed film in some ways. I mean, uh, the poster is on my wall right now. It's to the left, to the right of me as we're recording this, uh, with Murphy and the Detroit Lions jack in front of Beverly Hills sign. It's iconic. It's an <laughs> iconic poster. And I think what's so interesting about the Beverly Hills Cop series and and they bring Tony Scott into this that Tony Scott never directed a sequel of any of his movies. But he directed one sequel, and that's Beverly Hills Cop 2. It's it's the only like franchise movie he truly did. And what's so odd about the Beverly Hills Cop franchise is that the first one I do believe is a perfect balance of action and comedy. Mm-hmm. I think the third one is a we're gonna lean heavily into comedy and less on the action. And I think that was in in, in reaction to Beverly Hills Cop 2, where it was a, we're going to lean heavily into the action and less on the comedy. And it yeah. was because it was Tony Scott. Yeah, that's that's how I feel about this movie. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the first Beverly Hills Cop famously was meant to be an action movie and was kind of retrofitted to be a comedy when Eddie Murphy signed on. And this one, and so it's it's interesting because that one is like an accidental comedy. But I feel like they let, they had the action movie bones and then they just kind of let Eddie Murphy loose on it. And it, yeah. and it created that balance. And this one, this one just feel the, the comedy moments just don't fit with the action for me. Um, and Mur- like that, I think that's the, and it's fun. It's a fun movie. I like, I, I, mm-hmm. I do really enjoy just, you know, this is one of those comedies where, in the first movie there's so much animosity and like there's so much of that like him annoying the the beverly hills cops 
And so it's fun in this one to see them be buddies through the whole movie. And it's fun to have a buddy comedy with these two guys, including Judge, like Judge Reinhold is, is really fun in this movie. I love Judge Reinhold. But the I think the, the greatest crime of this movie, and this is not necessarily Tony Scott, but it makes Eddie Murphy feel a little forced to me. Like this movie feels sometimes where they're like, all right, action, action, action. And now Eddie make a joke. And so much of that early Eddie Murphy stuff is like so insanely organic, like 48 hours and, and the first mm-hmm. Beverly Hills cop where it's just like, he's this comedy wrecking ball that just like yeah. tears down anything else you, in any other part of this movie that, that you thought might be important other than him, you know? And, and this one feels like they were trying to maybe rein that in a little bit more. Maybe they were like, yeah, this needs to be like a really successful action movie, but yeah, it's, it's weird. It's really hard to put your finger on with this one because like 48 Hours, like Beverly Hills Cop, so much of the stuff that Murphy had been really successful at so far were action comedies. So mm-hmm. it's really hard for me to pinpoint where this one doesn't quite hit, but it, it's fun. It's a fun action movie. It's better. Like Top Gun, it is more competently made and much more enjoyable than yes. than 85% yes. of the action movie crap being made in the late 80s. Yeah. But it just they're not able to recapture the magic of the first one. And I mean, maybe that's just a sequel thing in general. But yeah, um, yeah there's, there's multiple times in this movie where they've got like the serious like alphabet crime investigation stuff going on. And then they'll like cut to Murphy for a one liner. And it's just like it's just it does. It doesn't feel the same. Yeah, it's it's so we're going off that a few things. Well, I, I noticed that more this time when looking at it where he would they do kind of repeat scenes of like what he would do in the first one where it was like, uh, hey, Murphy, here's a here, here, Eddie, here's a paper bag. Go get into the room with that paper bag. Mm-hmm. And that's what he would do. Or it's like, oh, you need to get a hotel room for the night. Hiding in the hotel room tonight. Let me go pretend I'm a Rolling Stone writer. That's the first one. And this one, it, it does feel a little forced where it's like, oh, we got to have that bit where he has the paper bag of vitamins yeah. and he's using it as a way to get into the room. And it just feels a little like not, I agree with you, not as organic as uh, the previous one. To go off also what you said in terms of direction, I think Beverly Hills Cop 1 is a better movie. I think Beverly Hills Cop 2 is a better directed film. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. I think Scott's visuals and and kind of style I think work beautifully with this movie, and I, I do think it's a little bit of a test run for what he would do later with say Denzel Washington. I yeah. think he really is trying to make Eddie Murphy a an action star in this movie, and I think at this point in time there wasn't really any uh, people of color who were action stars in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And Eddie Murphy was the funny guy, and 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 Tony Scott's like, no, 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 we're gonna make him the action star. And what I like about this movie, that I think, does very well, is that it tries to add more to Axel's like character. So it's there's the kind of repeat joke of just like, well, I I broke a occasional law or two before I became a police officer. And he's like kind of teaching these like interesting, like almost detective tricks mm-hmm. that we like we we saw Eddie be a little bit of a detective in Beverly Hills Cop One. I think Beverly Hills Cop Two, you're seeing it more that he's like, oh no, he really is a talented detective. And it's because of his experience, his background that's made him this way. And it's the like them getting into the the uh the house because he uses like a a, a piece of bubblegum wrapper to trick the alarm or something. And like he does these little things, like these little tricks that he's learned, and that wasn't as present in 
the first film. It's kind of like they're the indirect comments of that. But now we're like, we're going to show you a scene of how smart Axel Foley really is. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the one thing that I think makes this film interesting to me. Oh, shit, alarm tape. It weighs around a lot. If we open this door now, the connection is going to break between the magnets. So you just foil and you squeeze it between the two magnets. Then take your gum to hold it in place. Now, the magnets have the illusion that the connection's never been broken. Then we take our knife, open the door without... You walk in without the alarm going off. Looks like you've done that before. (laughs) Well, I wasn't always a police officer. Fractured a law or two when I was a kid. Have a piece? My last one. Spot it. None for you. And it's also a continuation of that friendship of the like the two Beverly Hills cop or the two Beverly Hills police officers, which with uh with John Aston and Judge Reinhold. As it's more about strengthening that friendship and not about the the conflict within that friendship. Mm-hmm. It's more like they're just good buddies and they're doing a they're doing a job. Now, what might have improved that was there, if there's a little bit more tension between them. But it is very much like they're just hanging out, like having a good time. If there's the scene when they're like, like doing the like humming and singing the dating game theme song mm-hmm. in Judge Reinhold's apartment. Yeah. And like, it's just th- them being buddies. Like they, they go to fishing, fishing trips together. Like, that's why I've always felt with the Beverly Hills Cop 4 movie. I feel like. Eddie Murphy's got to be working in Beverly Hills. If they ever do it, when, when four ever happens, I think what it should be is that Eddie Murphy is a Beverly Hills cop when he has to go back to Detroit. That's my pitch for Beverly Hills got four. Um, but anyway, Paul Reiser's in yeah, trouble in, in Detroit. Paul Reiser's in trouble is what I was thinking too. Paul Reiser gets, because every movie in the Beverly Hills Scott franchise starts off with a murder it, or, or attempted murder. Beverly Hills got one murder of a friend. Beverly Hills Cop 2, attempted murder of a friend. Beverly Hills Cop 3, murder of a mentor. Like, it's all, like, that's the kind of I do the like formula. between, I like between 1 and 2 that they, because uh, aliens came out between 1 and 2. And yeah. um, they were like, oh, we've got Paul Reiser in this franchise. We need to give let's him use, a little bit let's more Let's use him more. <laughs> um, but if you couldn't guess, Beverly Hills Cop 2, not well received. <laughs> Not well received. The the American critics are misunderstanding the greatness of Tony Scott. Uh, it was also a box office hit, though. It was. It made over two hundred seventy five million dollars on a twenty seven million dollar budget. Uh, Roger Ebert, again, <laughs> one star review of Beverly Hills Cop Two. The review starts off with. Something has gone terribly wrong here. They've made the wrong sequel. Uh, yeah, he can play. I think what was very misunderstood with this movie is that because it was so action heavy, they're just like, what is this? They've ruined this franchise. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. I think this, I think, I think some of the stuff that doesn't age well is some of the, the cop humor that just does not age well in our modern context. Um, but this is one I've shown to people. And, they always tend to like it a lot. Like it's not hated. 
Like I feel like all my friends have watched it's like it's a four they give it like a three and a half, four star out of five star movie. And that's not what critics gave it when this came out. So I think it I think because of Scott's visuals and his direction, it has it's aged well in that regard. Um but as many eighties comedies or whatever, the humor doesn't age as well yeah. in spots. Yeah. Uh, so I would say go and watch Belly Hills Cop too. Uh Murphy, however, said it was probably the most successful mediocre picture in history. So, <laughs> but he, and, but he said the same thing. He goes, cop two was basically a rehash, rehash of cop one, but it wasn't as spontaneous or funny. Whoa, whoa, wait a second, wait a second. This is wrong. What? These are wrong. What do you mean? These are wrong plans. Why? These are the old plans. Old. These are the old plans. What are you talking about? Weren't you at the meeting? No. With the Andersons before they went up to Hawaii? No. They didn't tell you to come to the meeting? No. I wasn't there to change these plans. I don't know. The Andersons, before they went up to Hawaii, they changed the plans. Oh, man. The plans have been changed. They're not supposed to be any right angles on this building. Wait. You, you, stop working. Stop, stop working. You guys have destroyed these people's houses, and now I have to change this. No right angles. This thing's round as a donut. What are you, a fucking art critic? No. They got the money, want to live in a donut? Let them live inside a donut. You know, people get money and lose their mind. So people say, I want to live in a round house. Very you got right. the money for it? Fuck it. Guys, stop. Look, look, look. Just stop it. I'm going to have to straighten this whole thing out. I'm going to have to talk to my people, and then they'll talk to their people, and yeah. then they'll talk to your people, and maybe this whole thing will get taken care of and nobody get fired, okay? I just maybe did what they showed you. Well, you, you know, did the yeah. right thing, but whoever gave you this, an asshole. Son of so stop. Everybody just come on down, go home, come relax. Out. You got the week off, and we'll straighten this whole thing out. Just leave it in my hand. And I think you should give your boys a big round of applause because they did. you have done a good job. Because other than the house being square, it's beautiful. You've done a good job for yourself. But go home now and relax for the rest of the week. I'll straighten this whole thing out. It's Miller time. And that moves us on to the next film he made. So that Bellios Cop 2 is 1987. He actually releases two movies in 1990. When we're talking about today... That one's Days of Thunder we'll talk about next week. But the one he released in 1990, February 1990, is a movie called Revenge. So, Thomas, what is Revenge about? Revenge is not that much about revenge, to my disappointment, <laughs> because that is my uh, my my guilty pleasure genre. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I I feel like the story of revenge doesn't doesn't really isn't really that important. Uh, but <laughs> stars Kevin Costner as a hotshot fighter pilot. I wonder where they got that idea from. Yeah. Um, who is retiring and taking his like taking his retirement vacation to go visit his friend who is a Mexican mafia lord. Yeah, by Anthony Quinn. And. Did they? Maybe I just maybe I glossed over it. Do they ever explain why they're friends? No, I, I think so. I think that was because there's two cuts to this movie. I think we watched the director's cut, and Tony's Tony's cut is actually like 24 minutes shorter. And I feel like in the theatrical cut, there maybe was a little bit more explanation that like Costner had saved Anthony Quinn in like a like in a hunting trip or something. I don't know what it was. But and that's why he sends him because he sends him guns like hunting guns. Yeah, they're super into hunting. They're also both super into tennis. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And so he's taking a little trip down with his dog to visit his buddy on his big ranch and play some tennis and do some hunting. But he is introduced to his friend's new wife by Madeline Stowe, played by Madeline Stowe. Yes. Um, And they immediately start hooking up um and the butler who doesn't like kevin costner tattles on him and so uh anthony quinn 
beats beats them both up, puts his wife into a brothel as punishment, and leaves yeah. Kevin Costner for dead in the desert. Uh, but Kevin Costner is rescued by a local farmer and nursed back to health and decides he's going to get the girl back and have his revenge. That's the first hour of the film right there. Yep. Yep. <laughs> the, the, revenge, very- the revenge of it. Unless the title... Unless the title is referring to Anthony Quinn having his revenge on Kevin Costner and Madeline Stowe, the, the revenge does not happen until there's 20 minutes left in the movie. And there's not much revenge. <laughs> was it? Yeah, it was, it, so, so a little bit of history with this movie. It had been development hell for 11 years. It should have been. <laughs> it was based on a novella released. Call, it was called Legends of the Fall originally and then became became revenge well it was it was it in a collection with legends of the fall because he actually wrote the, it's the same author who wrote oh he did legends okay so yeah so yeah it, it was it, okay so that's what it was it was a novella was published in 1979 along with two other novels on un, novellas under the title legends of the fall yeah so it I was think, combined I think legend together. of the fall was just within that that collection yeah because he um it's the same author who wrote legends of the fall although he did not write the script for legends of the fall which might be might be the key here because he did write the script for this one. He, yeah, he was a co-writer for it. Yes, uh, but it had been so. But he was so originally though. I'm gonna give you a little bit of the names that popped around this movie beforehand. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Houston was gonna direct it initially. Yeah, I mean, I could see it as like a as like a more noir type of film. And for Anthony Quinn's character, he wanted Jack Nicholson, and Jack Nicholson really wanted to play that character weird i mean that that definitely changes things a bit if he's if he's younger yeah and nicholson also at one point i think wanted to direct it as well then another name that was tossed around that wanted to direct there was attached directed orson wells hmm. late in his career um because he died in 85 another director that was attacked that was that wanted to do it he actually wrote a screenplay for it walter hill and Walter Hill wanted to do it with Jeff Bridges in the lead. Okay. But Bridge but Bridges was like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> Harrison, the the uh, Jim Harrison, the writer, the, the original novella, uh, he said that the he initially wrote twelve different endings to the story. I wonder what the eleven other endings were. <laughs> uh so John Houston wanted to direct it. Costner wanted to make it, but Houston was not impressed by Costner as an actor. Yeah. Uh, once Costner got a little bit of clout from movies like No Way Out and kind of other films, he said, "Screw it, I'm going to try to help produce it myself." And it still took a while. He actually, because because so many just like uh, stalls of the production, he's like, "Screw it, I'm going to make this movie called Field of Dreams instead." Until you guys figure out what we're going to do with Revenge. And I do think so. So this movie comes out after after Field of Dreams, mm-hmm. a very American dad yep. movie. And this is not that at all. <laughs> no. When you, uh, you I've I've expressed my feelings on here about Costner. Um go back to our Bull Durham episode if uh yes. if you haven't listened to it. I like Kevin Costner as an everyman. I think he plays a fantastic small town dad farmer dad in in the baseball uh the burned out catcher on a minor league baseball team like that is if you need charm and you need somebody that you're like wow that guy is like 
that guy's pretty good looking for being a burned out catcher on a minor league baseball team cool uh-huh. he perfects that like burned out middle america but charming and handsome perfect that is his mode if he had stayed mm-hmm. in that his entire career we'd be golden but when he started casting himself as a hotshot fighter pilot badass or robin hood or uh the guy the only guy who survived the apocalypse that's when i'm like okay kevin costner i don't i don't need to see you in this man you're not because he still has that same energy i feel like he still brings that small town american farmer energy to these movies well i don't care what you say the water world's a great film uh I do love Waterworld. Um, I, I I get what you mean because Costner, he is a very like Midwestern, like salt of the earth type mm-hmm. guy. Like it's like I me. Mean, it, yeah, like, he's great. He, he's great in those roles. Like I I I I, I won't go into to say Batman versus Superman and all that stuff and 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 Snyder's series, but I think he's perfectly cast as Jonathan Kent, mm-hmm. like as as Superman's dad. I yeah. think when I th- when I think Jonathan Kent, farmer on the land i think kevin costner's a great choice um i i do agree he he doesn't fully and the thing is i i don't hate him in this movie but i understand your point i think the issue lies in the writing of this film because it, it feels like i didn't like i didn't hate it as much as you did i actually kind of liked it it's kind of <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm in the i'm in the middle of the road here um it's a movie that feels like it's two movies put together like I think once the whole like beating happens or whatever, it's a much, it's a slower film on the on that back half, but it feels like in a better way. Yeah. Like yeah, that, that, I, yeah I, the the first half is meant to be is meant to evoke those erotic thrillers of that era, and they and I, I like Madeline Stowe, I like Kevin Costner. I had zero chemistry between the two of them. I thought like multiple sex scenes. The the sex scene by like the river is <laughs> yeah. the most unsexy sex scene they, they like have this one cut and it's just kevin costner in like blue jeans like dancing i was like oh my god yeah. please please get me out of this now no, no thank you <laughs> yeah no I, I definitely the movie picked up for me specifically when uh miguel ferrer and um john leguizamo showed up and then they don't yeah. really get to do that much but i was glad to have them there it was some fresh energy and Miguel Ferrer actually feels like this like strung out Mexican badass. Yeah. <laughs> when Costner's trying to bring that energy and he's not. Well, that one part, that one scene with Miguel Ferrer, like towards the end when they go into like a brothel where they think Malin Stowe is, and he like takes off his, he, he goes in like with the mask guy. He's like, oh, they know me here. And then he takes it off and he goes, and he basically just says, like, if you're lying to me, I will come back here and kill you. Yeah. And he's then the best she's part like, of the movie, and she, and she's just like, I actually don't know where he where she is. He goes, okay, yeah, he's he's he. I love Miguel Ferrer, but he he is the best part of this movie for sure. The thing about this movie again, so Tarantino loves this movie. He actually says it's it's Tony Scott's true masterpiece. I believe is what no. I read. Sorry, Tarantino. Uh, no, and some other critics as well feel the same way. I I think that first half to me, I think. They don't establish their relationship well, Madeline Stowe and Kevin Costner, or Kevin Costner and Anthony Quinn. And I do wonder what the theatrical cut is like with that 24 extra minutes. But even I read the differences, and it doesn't seem like it added that much to it. Yeah. And it extends that 
that whole section even more. And it's like an hour long section or something. Yeah. So like, I don't want more of that. I want more of the back half. Exactly. Um, when he's like trying to trek through Mexico and like every, all the like entire Mexico criminal underworld is like looking for him. Like that's, yeah. that's what this needs more of. But he's meeting more interesting characters. Like it's, uh, uh, like some Miguel Ferreira. It's, it's James Cayman. Who's the, who's the kind of like horse, like rancher or whatever mm-hmm. that he's, that's like, Kind of, I think I read it's kind of like like what Costner could become or something was like his like future or something like that in Mexico. But it is visually in that last half, it's probably Tony Scott's most restrained filmed visually. Yeah, he plays it out in a lot of static wides. I'm thinking like the shots of like like Costner in the Mexican town on the border, and. It, it's very it's a it's a more still movie than what cost than what Tony Scott is used to. Mm-hmm. It feels like, and that first half, I think you're just you're trying so hard to ke- like figure out what's going on with the characters. Is that because you don't know the relationship when they start having this like very erotic relationship? Um, it just doesn't land because you don't really know why they're together, and then. I won't go too far into this because I don't want to spoil the ending for people that want to see it, but like the ending kind of doesn't make sense for their characters because of what's happened, like how the relationship started. It's like Kevin Costner basically is like the last half of the movie, he's trying to go and find Madeline Stowe because mm-hmm. he's in love with her. But we've never really seen them really be in love because it was very much going off these like animal animal instincts these ur- these these, yeah, these sexual know, urges they've they hooked up like three times yeah. and that's it and i'm like okay so it just doesn't make sense of why like he's like i'm going to risk my entire life to go, to travel to mexico kill and everyone find until i find her yeah. like all right dude yeah and so like, i i wonder like if if there's a rewrite of the script i think you could, there is a there's a, a a really good movie in there but i think it gets lost in the script he and my father were in business together Tibby rescued him from bankruptcy and they became close friends. That's how marriages are arranged down here. Did I just blow your mind? Yes. (laughs) It's not polite to mimic people. Oh, I know. It's not how it was. I married Tibby. Because I was in love with him. All my sisters were in love with him. Well, it's getting late. Would you tell Tibby that I was tired? Yes. Thank you for dinner. You're welcome. Is it watchable because of Scott's direction? Is the question? Well, I mean, y'all know if you thought it was watchable. So uh, uh. it was. It, it felt like a slog for me. I I maybe would have liked to see this. And and you know, I I think part of the reason I was a little disappointed in it was you know it's called Revenge. It's Tony Scott. Like I was like, all right, Man on Fire is like one of the most perfect revenge movies ever. So yeah. I'm gonna get some Man on Fire energy here, and it had it had none of that. Yeah, I. I yeah, people who say it's like it's a test run for Man on Fire, I think it's. I don't think so at all. It's set, they're um, both set in South America. That's it. That's all you got. Yeah, that's all you got. Yeah. Um, 
to go to Ebert because I keep I feel like we keep, I keep going to Ebert on these these reviews. Uh, his opening line is "Revenge plays like a showdown between its style and its story." I don't. It, it combines slick, high tension filmmaking fashion of today with the values and sexual stereotyping of yesterday. It's such a good job of salesmanship that you have to stop and remind yourself you don't want any. Uh, and I wonder if it's, does it work better if it's a period piece? I also just don't like him being a pilot. Honestly, change yeah. that. Yeah. And the whole movie's different to me. That makes no sense. Like, I wonder if you set this in the 1940s, like, is it a better movie? Yeah. Like, what if it's 1940s and like, maybe he's come back from the war and he goes down to Mexico to see his old buddy that he like grew up with or, or like his, his buddy who grew up with or something or like a guy who raised him. I don't know. Yeah. I just think there's a bad movie here. <laughs> I think, I think it really is. But, um, yeah. So with Scott, so again, and that was also revenge was the first bomb of Kevin Costner's career. One of the, one of the first big failures of Kevin Costner's career, making like $15 million at the box office on 22 million did you hope to go unnoticed here play games with me i asked you a question well Maro says you're looking for the wife of uh david o mendez that's a very brave but foolish gesture thanks for the advice what do you know rumors man like what uh-uh mexican gossip i'll have better information for you soon but she's alive God damn it, I asked you a question. Is she alive? Yeah, she's alive. Look, I know about you. I know your story. You know my story? Yeah. Well, while you're drinking my beer, why don't you tell me yours? Laura was married to my sister. She got caught up in uh, some business involving Tibro Mendez. And she was killed. Happened a long time ago. You know, you can't kill a man like Mendes and hope to get out of here alive. I didn't say I came to kill anybody, all right? I just want the girl. So we've talked about these four movies. What do you think is the strongest of these four movies we've talked about so far? I mean, I think Top Gun, but... Uh... Okay, your top. Okay, that's top. I'm gonna go with the hunger for me, probably with this one. Um, yeah, I, I think the hunger shows a different direction he could have gone in his career for sure. Like the hunger, yeah. I, I, if he hadn't followed the hunger up with Top Gun, I don't know that he ever would have really had a career as a commercially viable director. I agree with that. If you just look that. at the hunger. It's like, all right, this guy might make some interesting stuff and maybe somewhere down the line he could, you know, get some indie interest enough to to fund a couple passion projects. But I don't think you see him becoming the blockbuster director that he is based off of that. I agree with you on that. I agree. I think I think I, I yeah, I give credit to Bruckheimer and Simpson for seeing something in him and his commercials and in The Hunger. I think it's a. I think it's a visually again. I, I think it's done well over time, but in that moment of '83, people are like, "I want a story," mm-hmm. and he's like, "But I'm giving you, I'm giving you great <laughs> visuals here, and I'm yeah. telling you the story through visuals." But they're like, "I want dialogue," and I think Tony Scott because I'm my love for Tony Scott's developed over the years. Again, my buddy who I know loves Top Gun 
and who's listening to the show, uh, he he introduced me to Tony Scott in a more because I was like, I knew him as like he's Ridley's brother and he made kind of these movies or whatever. But my appreciation for him has grown because of how visually stunning he is as a director and how all of his movies have that Tony Scott stamp in some way. At least the ones I've seen so far. I have two more left that I haven't seen. And yeah, it's just, I, I think he's got, I mean, people, I had someone last week when I pitched them that we were doing a Tony Scott month. They go, Oh, you mean Ridley? I go, no, 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 no. Tony Scott. Go, Who's Tony Scott. And I'm just <laughs> like, damn you. But, uh, but when you look at this era, I mean, look, let's talk about the influence of this era real quick. So you have the hunger, you have top gun, you have Bell Hills cop two, and you have revenge. I think the two big influencers, it's top gun and the hunger. I think that really, I think hunger on the niche scale and Top Gun on the massive mainstream scale. Yeah. I think blockbusters changed completely due to something like Top Gun. Yeah. And like I said, with hunger, I think hunger, he served us up on a platter like, okay, this is, this is me. This is what I'm capable of. And we, and we wouldn't see that yeah. again until he had really, like, like I was saying, established himself as being commercially viable later in his career. He was able yeah. to kind of blend that with, you know, in a couple of weeks from now, we'll be talking about how these movies are Hunger meets Top Gun, basically. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it's a really... Yeah, that's a fair point. It's a really interesting one-two punch of being like, here is all of my artistic vision, and then here yeah. is what I can give you for your money to make you a successful movie. And and he yeah. did them both really well right off the bat. And, I, and as we said, like, it really... I think... Without Top Gun, we don't have Tom Cruise in the current model that he is, and I think it's. I think I read that he, they were worried that he, that, that Tom Cruise couldn't do the stunts for the movie or something mm-hmm. like the actual flying of it, and so he like put him up in like a, a jet and like had him test it out, and he came down just like vo- like threw up everywhere, <laughs> and he ran to the payphone and was like, "I'm doing this movie, I love it," and you're like, that became his career. <laughs> like that's literally if Tony Scott doesn't put Tom Cruise in the jet. You don't have anything. You don't have Mission Impossible. You don't have any of the movies he does yep. uh, action-wise. Uh, he doesn't keep in top physical shape if it's not for Top Gun, I wonder. Mm-hmm. Battle Hills Cop 2, again, I think is an underrated sequel that everyone should get a look at. Um, and I'd love to hear thoughts on it. And then Revenge is the the forgettable one of this bunch, I feel. I feel like every month, every every week, we're gonna dis- there's going to be like one movie that's kind of the forgettable one of the group and we'll discuss more as the the month goes on um i'm trying i was gonna see what kind of question i can ask here go ahead i think that's what's going to be really interesting about this month is a lot of times we've picked out directors who have just like an insanely strong portfolio because Mm -hmm. they're you know the the people that you want to talk about but scott is one of those that has some really strong movies and some really poor movies and some stuff in between Mm -hmm. So this is going to be mm-hmm. a really interesting month to kind of dive into like what what of his stuff has been misunderstood, what of his stuff has been overrated, what of his stuff deserved to flop. And those are questions we don't normally get to ask a lot in these director months, but it's definitely going to be part of the journey for this one. Yeah. Uh and I think I think some like the hunger is a misunderstood one. But like so so we're we're playing with this with this these four films for example they're all different genres you have the hunger which is a vampire movie you have Top Gun which is as I said sports kind of war film Beverly Hills Cop two is a buddy cop sequel movie and Revenge is a revenge slash erotic thriller 
slash kind of his neo-noir. Some person just said it's the one movie that's the closest to Ridley that Tony made. Hmm. Is what is what I think I read one review say is it's the closest that Tony ever got to being a really doing a really Scott movie, like any Ridley Scott movie or like The Accountant or what what was that one called the The Counselor The Counselor yeah because yeah sure which, yeah, which both I, of them were I was pretty excited for and ultimately left disappointed so there you go which I which I read someone say that The Counselor was was Ridley's Tony Scott movie. Oof. <laughs> So, that's, that's so a, yeah, that's, yeah, that's unfortunate if it yeah. was. Yeah. So the next episode, we talked about these four movies. Next episode, we're going to be talking about Days of Thunder starring Tom Cruise, re- reuniting Tom Cruise with Tony Scott and Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson. Uh, also, we're talking about Last Boy Scout. Probably not as much because we discussed Last Boy Scout on the Shane Black episode, but we'll we'll go a little bit into it uh, in terms of the Tony Scott realm. Uh, then we have True Romance written by Quentin Tarantino and then Crimson Tide starring Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman. The first collaboration with Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman uh, for Tony Scott. Mm-hmm. I'm excited for next week. I think it's going to be an yeah. interesting yeah. discussion. I think, I think that's, that's of, of his runs. That's one of his strongest runs for sure. I, I agree. I think that, I think that's for solid movie. Like there's not, there's not like a, there's not a big misfire in there. Yeah. But we'll discuss because I, I gotta pitch my sequel for Days of Thunder. <laughs> Anything else you want to say about this section of Tony Scott's career, Thomas? Uh, you know, pull up Spotify and listen to the uh, listen to the soundtrack to Top Gun because Kenny Loggins one one of these one of these days we're gonna do a Kenny Loggins movie oh, God. month and just talk about no one Caddyshack. no no singular artist has touched as many incredible films as kenny loggins <laughs> you bring up a, a point I, want, I, I forgot to mention uh so you got kenny loggins on top gun we didn't talk tony scott's use of music in his movies is very strong mm-hmm. i think he does he does it in the hunger he does in top gun Beverly hills cop 2 didn't talk about this how about shakedown by bob seger apparently bob seger's only number one hit is shakedown from Beverly Hills Cop oh, no. 2. That's the only number song. one hit. It's not his best song, but was, it, was, was I it jamming it? Glenn Fry did the did Glenn the first Fry one? did the first yeah. did the first one. He was one of the ones. It was uh The Heat is on. The Heat is on The Heat is on. Yep. Yeah, uh and this is Shakedown. But Shakedown, I sat with Eddie Murphy and Beverly Hills Cop 2. I mean, again, I don't know how peak you can get when you are it's a crotch shot of you with Bob Seger's shakedown playing with your name, Eddie Murphy productions over that crotch shot. <laughs> that's like, that's star power. That's star power. And then you're driving a fast sports car down the streets of Detroit with the Tony Scott orange sky. Like, I mean, again, I don't know what can top it. It's so, I mean, it's amazing. Again, opening of that. I didn't talk about this. I keep coming back to Belly Scott too, but the opening of that too, great openings. He has the opening heist in Beverly Hills Cop 2 with mm-hmm. Bridget Nielsen. Um, a great opening of Top Gun. I think a great opening of Hunger. Hunger is, is an amazing opening. Uh, and the weak link of the openings is Revenge. So we're going keep coming back to that. <laughs> um, but yeah, go check them out. And that's all we have for you on this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the Cination Podcast on Out Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, make sure you write us a review on whatever platform you listen to the show on. Yeah, guys, love to hear from you. Love to hear your thoughts. 
um, hit us up if you if you're furious at our at our Top Gun takes. I would like to state again for the record <laughs> that I love Top Gun. <laughs> and I will say I like Top Gun. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, tell us what you guys had to say about about what we're doing. And how already make sure you like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can catch us there. Post on our uh, comment on our posts. Send us a message. We like hearing from you guys. We hear from a lot of kind of just uh, messages of late from from new followers on Instagram and kind of other places. So thank you so much for becoming supporters of Cine Nation Podcast. Thomas, as always, thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. And thank you all for listening. Hope you listen to our episode soon. Bye. <laughs>